Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, would you grab your Bible off the end table or off the shelf, wherever you are, and open it up to John chapter 1? I would love for you to have a copy of God's Word as we dive through today. We're going to move around a bunch, so maybe even as helpful as the Scriptures today would be a notepad, because we're going to move pretty quickly through a bunch of different Scriptures. And so if you don't want to flip through, you can jot those down and uh, pick them up later. Would you pray with me? And let's invite the Lord to speak to us as we engage his word today. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. We are sinners and we are in need of your grace. Thank you, Lord, that your name is above all others. And that as we come into your presence, we come knowing that you welcome us and that you desire to speak to our hearts. And so, God, would you open up our hearts to what you desire to say to us today? Not just our minds, but our lives, that we would be shaped around your truth. And so, God, help us to be those who intentionally follow after you. Break down the multitudes of ways that our culture has formed us and instead allow us the grace of being formed by your truth. God, would you guard my words that they would come from your spirit alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain in us, shaping us, forming us. We pray the prayer of Paul for the Corinthian church, that beholding the glory of Christ, we would be transformed increasingly into his image. Do this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're beginning today uh, what is going to be a very short practice series. Very short meaning today and next week. Uh, It's a short practice series that I'm simply calling Journeying Together. Now, um, as we talk about journeying together, let me first talk a little bit about what a practice series even is, because this is distinct from our typical sermon series where we're seeking to engage the truth of the scriptures in order to gain more information. Um, One of the things that if you've been with us for a couple years, uh, uh, several years ago, we reoriented our spiritual formation model around a fuller view of spiritual formation. The reason was we recognized that there were tons of people who were gaining information about Jesus, who knew the scriptures well, but that our lives weren't being changed. And so we began to look at that process of apprenticing after Jesus, truly becoming like him. His invitation to us is that we would follow him and that as we follow him, that we would be like him. And so we talked about three primary activities of being an apprentice. We said that we want to be with Jesus, we want to become like Jesus, and we want to do the things that, that Jesus did. Those aren't original things, but they were the three that we looked at and said, those are the, those are the things that we want to be doing. But we agreed together that we don't naturally become like Jesus, that Our lives are not oriented towards being shaped like him. In fact, um, if left to our own devices, we're shaped very differently than him. And so we looked at the fact that change needs to happen if I'm going to become like Jesus. But change can happen uh, two different ways. So there's an unintentional way that we're formed. And so we looked at this model that you see in front of you that was the way that we're naturally kind of passively changed by the world around us. We're changed by the stories that we believe, the things that we hear, the relationships that we have, the people that we hang out with, the habits that we engage in. And we're changed by our environment over a period of time. This week was, uh, and I don't want to hammer it, but it was an example of the way that when the world around us forms us, how we begin to believe different things in different ways and that that affects our behavior. It affects who we are. The culture is constantly changing us and that's an unintentional reality that's just simply part of our lives. If we are going to be formed into the character of Christ, if we're going to become like him, it requires an intentional step. 
And so we looked at another model that we simply called intentional spiritual formation. And it takes those same factors, but it inverts them into the, the heart of Christ for us, that we would be taught by the word of God, that we would be students of the word who would hear his word and be shaped by it, that we would be formed by a community of people who are pursuing after Jesus together, and that we would have habits or disciplines or what we've called practices, practices that are taken from the life of Jesus so that as we seek to have his life, we also do that through gaining his lifestyle. We do the things that Jesus did. And so over a period of time, we pause our regular sermon series and we engage in specific practices that are from the life of Jesus that form us and shape us. They're part of the way that we become the people that God's called us to be. What's vitally important to get is that these practice series have two different kind of factors. So there's the practical side of them. Uh, take Bible reading, for example. Bible reading is one of the practices that we've engaged as a, uh, as a corporate body for several years. And when you read the Bible, there's a practical side to it. You gain knowledge from the scriptures. I, I, I read the scriptures and I learn something. I gain something about who God is or about who I am or how I should respond. So at one level, there's a practical, um, a, a practical gain from the discipline of Bible reading. But there's also what I'm simply going to call a mystical response to the disciplines. Now, don't be, uh, don't, don't be scared away by the word. It's just simply saying that there's a supernatural way that we're formed as we engage in the practices of Jesus. So again, take Bible reading. If I'm reading the scriptures every day, if I begin every morning by getting up and immersing myself in the scriptures, even when I'm not gaining new information, there's still a formation that's happening in my life. My life is beginning to be formed around the word of God because of this habit that I'm engaging and because of the truth that I'm immersed in. Even if I don't, even if I can't put my finger on, I learned this today or I picked this up or this was something that really stuck out to me. The, the act of engaging the word forms us. So there's a practical and a mystical side to these habits or these practices. Now that's important as we come into this practice of journeying together because journeying together has both of those sides. Certainly as we journey with one another, as we commit to walking together with another believer in Christ, we gain things like uh, encouragement along the journey. We gain things like someone to uh, pray with, to process life with, to hear truth from, to be accountable to. Those are practical ways that we gain. But there's also a mystical side to it. We live in a hyper-individualistic society, meaning we are so focused on us and our own circle. But the Bible is communal, not individualistic. The Bible is written to groups of people who are being formed together. Um, David Brooks, who was a New York is a New York Times columnist, wrote a book back in 2015 called The Road to Character. It was an excellent uh, book that talked about the way that character is formed. And then just early last year, he released a, a follow-up book called The Second Mountain. And he was kind of at the beginning of that book uh, thinking about the way that character is formed and how that character is vitally important, but not as important as what he called moral joy. L listen to the way that, uh, that Brooks thinks through this. He says this, I no longer believe that character is mostly an individual task or is achieved on a person-by-person -person basis. I no longer believe that character building is like going to the gym. You do your exercises and build up your honesty, courage, integrity, and grit. I now think good character is a byproduct of giving yourself away. You surrender to a community, make promises to other people, build a thick jungle of loving attachments, lose yourself in the daily act of serving others as they lose themselves in the daily act of serving you. Character is a good thing to have, but there's a better thing, moral joy. And that serenity arrives as you come closer to embodying perfect love. 
What I love about what Brooks is saying is this, that, that there's an individual way that our character is formed, but our character is not fully formed individually. It's not fully formed until we become less individualistic and more communal, where we begin to care more for the world around us than simply our own interests and our own needs. As we journey together, the mystical byproduct is that we begin to have those individualistic edges sanded off and we begin to be more communal because we're concerned about other people that we're pouring our lives into. There's this formational aspect to journeying together that's not just the practical of, man, it's so helpful when I meet with that person and we talk about those things, but as I care about that person, And as I give my life for that person, I'm changed. Something in me changes. The way these practices often work is that we have practice guides that go with them. They're not traditional study guides. Our goal is not to gain more information, but it's to do activities, engage in practices that are part of shaping us. This time it's going to be just a little bit different. And so uh, this week and next week, and then in an ongoing way, we're re-releasing material on discipleship partners. Discipleship partners have been around for a couple years and they're intentional ways that we journey together. Um, We've uh, gone through and done some significant updates to this material. So um, you likely have a booklet that has red letters the blue letter ones now are what you're going to be looking for. Um, but these, these discipleship partner booklets walk through with a lot of specificity what it looks like for us to be journeying together with one another. Um, we also have just a little note card. I call it just like the little discipleship partner cheat sheet. It's just a, a, a little card that walks you through. This is what we're doing. This is how we do it on a very simple basis. So that when we gather together with the people around us, we're not just talking and catching up, but we're actually engaging the truth of what God's uh, called us to do. All of that material is online, so you can download all of that. And as soon as we're back in person, we'll have it all uh, here in person as well. Um, As you enter in, let me simply say this. The material, I I think it's good. I I mean, I put it together, so of course I think it's good. But it's not going to help you if you don't actually do it. See, the, the heart of spiritual formation is not that we gain more knowledge, not that you read through this booklet and say, oh, isn't that interesting? That's six or eight pages on the way that discipleship is supposed to work. But rather that we do the work of discipleship, that we engage with one another. And so I'm going to encourage you this week, I'm going to encourage you next week and in the weeks to come, if you don't yet have a discipleship partner, now's the time. Connect with someone and begin to journey together. You don't have to do it in any kind of formal way. Uh, Somebody that you're already connected to, just say, hey, would you be up for meeting a couple times a month and going through this journey together, being my discipleship partner? Um, Maybe that's somebody in your community group or somebody that's already a part of your life. Um, if If you're just at a loss, you're not sure who you would do that with, We'd love for you, you can go onto our website or you can send an email again, info at yorkalliance.org, and we would be glad to try to hook you up with others who are also looking for discipleship partners. But you don't need to do it through the church, but I want to encourage you to do it because it's vitally important that we journey together. But the question is, why? That's the question for today, at least. Why would I do that? Why would I commit to journeying with someone else? Why would I commit in the midst of all of the other busyness of life? Why would I commit to journeying with someone, pouring out my life for them, uh, connecting with them? Why, Why would I do that? And the short answer is, Jesus did it. But there's a lot more to it than that. And so that's where we're going to uh, jump into today. We're going to look at three things. First of all, the model that Jesus gave to us. And then two other kind of auxiliary things. The model that Jesus gave to us, working out the gospel, and then following Jesus in the mundane. So the model of Jesus, working out the gospel, and following Jesus in the mundane. Before we get to John chapter 1, I want to just take you back in your mind to Genesis chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to refer to one verse. But if you remember, Genesis chapter 2, this is prior to sin entering the world. This is right after the author of Genesis is giving us this this, uh, poetic representation of the way that God created all that is. And um, Genesis 2 is focusing in 
on the creation of humanity. And as Adam is being engaged by God and God is kind of marveling at the beauty of his creation, in Genesis 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 18, he makes a statement. He says this, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, If you're familiar with the way that Genesis 2 flows, what comes right after that is God removing a rib from Adam and creating Eve and um, this uh, male-female companionship that became part of the journey. And and so we tend to see it's not good for man to be alone as a reference to romantic love. But not only does the Bible not say that, the Bible seems to push against that being the primary thing that God's doing in Genesis chapter 2. For instance, the Apostle Paul went through his whole life either not finding or maybe not even desiring to find a romantic partner, and yet he was deeply connected to the people around him in community. Jesus himself lived in the midst of community on purpose. See, when when the Bible tells us it's not good for man to be alone, what God is telling us in in a beautiful poetic way is that one person can't live the life of the Trinity. Think about that. One person can't live the life of the Trinity. God exists forever in this beautiful, perfect community, and he desires for us as his people to live that way. So when Jesus shows up on the scene in Philippians chapter 2, for instance, Paul tells us that he became like us. Hebrews says that he was like us in every way, yet was without sin. And so part of what that means is that Jesus had a need for other people. It is not good for man to be alone, even the God-man. And so John chapter 1 brings us to this fascinating interaction. Listen as I read. This is starting in verse 35. And this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come. And you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. There's a lot more there, but let me just simply say this. Jesus begins his public ministry by inviting those who are his apprentices to not simply listen to his teaching. Jesus does not say, get a notebook out and start to take notes. I have some stuff on the interpretation of Isaiah that's going to be really important for you, right? He doesn't say we're going to dig into the Old Testament. He says, come with me. Come and be a part of my life. Come and stay with me, quite literally, And um, it's easy for us to think that he's being symbolic in some way, but if you keep your finger in John and turn to the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, there's this fascinating interchange. And again, if you're not able to keep up, just jot these down and um, uh, you'll be able to look them up later. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, it says this, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now there's a bunch of stuff that's in there that we don't need to look at today. What I want you to see is simply this. Jesus is quite literal about following him. He's saying, hey man, if you come, we're not going to the Hilton. I don't have a nice house. I don't have a guest room. I don't have a futon that folds out. Like literally, I'm staying out under the stars. And if you're coming, you're coming with me. You're going to stay under the stars with me. Jesus was completely serious that following him meant living with him, journeying with him, being a part of this tight-knit community. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is a fascinating passage. Jesus has just come out of uh, turning the uh, 
cre- creating bread, um, feeding the 5,000 and uh, giving them all of this food. And so all of these people have followed him, but Jesus knows they're following him because they want what he can give them. He can give them food. They want the food. And so Jesus begins to teach and he teaches in a pretty aggressive way because he wants those who are just after the bread to leave effectively. He doesn't want people who um, don't want to truly follow after him. And as he teaches, he, he actually hits a nerve so much so that everybody leaves. Like this massive crowd is here. And I just kind of picture them like first a couple at a time and then all of a sudden just a a mass exodus. Everybody just takes off. And Jesus at the end of John chapter 6 is kind of left with just a few of his disciples uh, standing around him. And uh, this is what it says in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? You have to use some imagination to understand what's Jesus saying there, and I'm not sure, but I read it with a a, a bit of sadness. Jesus is saying, here here you all are with me. Are you leaving too? Because you're part of my community, this tight-knit group, and if you leave, I'm left alone. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, we're with you. Um, <laughs> I read into a little bit of Peter's response, like, we would leave because this is really difficult, but we think you're the only one who has the real answer. So we're with you. We're sticking with you, and they continue to journey together with Jesus. If you kick back to Matthew chapter 16, again, you can just jot that down. In in Matthew 16, there's this pinnacle point that um, happens actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's kind of the high point, uh, the center point of the Gospels in all three of those accounts, where Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, "Who, who do the people around here say that I am? And they respond saying, well, some people say you're a prophet, some people say you're Elijah, all kinds of different things. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And if you remember the story, Peter responds saying, you're the Christ, the Son of God. It's fascinating that Jesus is waiting for them to say it. If you followed through the, disciple, the, the Gospels, the demons from the very beginning have declared that he's the Son of God. There are people along the way who see who he is, but Jesus is waiting for his disciples to get it. And when his community gets it, it changes everything. All theologians are united that in all three gospel accounts, it's at Peter's declaration that Jesus moves from wandering the area around Galilee to move straight to Jerusalem to move to the cross. He was waiting for his friends to get it. That's how important they were to him. Then maybe turn to John chapter 15, there are so many different uh, options, but we'll go to John 15. John 15 is a section, famous section of scripture talking about abiding in Christ and remaining in him. Jesus is teaching his disciples. But he says something in verse 14 that I I think is really instructive. Um, In verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not do what his master is doing. I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus is sealing with his disciples this deep relationship. They've journeyed together, and he tells them, you're my friends, and you've journeyed with me. You're part of my life. From there, Jesus, Matthew chapter 26, goes to the garden and he invites Peter, James, and John to come with him into the garden. And he says, stay awake, watch with me, be an encouragement for me. If you remember the story, they don't, they fall asleep. But Jesus wants them to be there with him. As Jesus is, uh, is arrested and taken through the process of the trial, one of the things that's noticeable throughout the gospel accounts is that Jesus feels very alone during that section. And yet, even when he's on the cross, Jesus speaks to John and says, John, would, would you take care of my mother? His, some of his last words are directed towards his friends that are still there with him. 
And then when Jesus resurrects, there's this powerful, these series of powerful scenes where Jesus is engaging again with his friends. You see Thomas, for instance, in John chapter 20, where he, he's unwilling to believe that Jesus has rose again, and Jesus lovingly comes to him and says, touch my hands, touch my side, find out that it's real. Just a chapter later in John chapter 21, um, Jesus is interacting with Peter on the beach, and he goes through this intentional process of reinstating Peter as the leader of the disciples. Remember, Peter had betrayed him three times, and so three different times Jesus asks him this question. Do you see this interaction with Thomas, this interaction with Peter, he didn't have to do that. He did that because he loved them. These were his friends. And then I love right after that in John chapter uh, 21, right after that narrative in verse 20, it says this, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's the shorthand way that John refers to himself, the disciple that Jesus loved. Jesus is deeply in relationship with the disciples around him. And that's what I want you to see. There's so much that we can take from all of these passages. But Jesus intentionally surrounded himself with people. The Son of God come to earth needed community, needed it. God uh, designed all of us to need one another. And Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3. We in our individualistic culture tend to see the need for other people as a sign of weakness or a result of sin. But actually in perfection, the, the, the creation that God declared very good That creation needed other people because we can't live the life of the Trinity by ourselves. And so Jesus came and brought apprentices around him and loved them, walked with them, was deeply in community with them. And I believe in a way that he humbled himself, needed those people the same way that you and I need one another. Why do we journey together? Well, first, because Jesus modeled it for us. Jesus showed us how much we needed it, how important it was. Following him is never intended to be individual. We're always intended to follow him in community. But that's not the only one. I want to look at two other reasons. There are lots more, but two other reasons that I want to highlight this morning. The first one is working out the gospel. So Jesus modeled it for us, but we also, as we live together, work out the gospel. Here's what I mean. As Jesus is teaching us to pray, um, if you were with us during First Wednesday, we modeled our First Wednesday prayer off of the the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter 6, and we journeyed through one phrase at a time. And and it's it's unique in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, uh, Jesus tells us to pray, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It seems like it's conditional. In fact, um, Matthew, uh, if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 6, actually unpacks it and makes it, it seems, even more conditional. Um, That our forgiveness seems to be contingent on us forgiving other people. And what we talked about on Wednesday and what I want you to hear is it's not that our forgiveness is contingent, What it is, is that when we are forgiven, we always will forgive other people. And so what Jesus is saying is that as you forgive other people, you know that you are truly forgiven. Who are the other people? Well, they're the people that we're journeying with. Um, We are in relationship with people, constantly put in situations where we need to forgive and be forgiven. It's part of the way that we work out the gospel. John Tyson and Heather Grizzle in their book, A Creative Minority, excellent book on what it means to be believers in Jesus today, they make this statement. If there is no interpersonal conflict in your life, no elements of your character that, are being conf- that you are being confronted about, you are networking, you are not in close community. Let me say that again. If there's no interpersonal conflict in your life, no elements of your character that are being, you're being confronted about, you're networking. You're not in close community. Now, I think that's vitally important because the church is full of people who are networking, 
who are connecting to one another in social ways that can move us forward in our lives. Maybe that's move us forward in our spiritual life. Often that's moving us forward in other areas of our life as well. I'm connected to you because you can help me in this area or that area. But when we get connected enough to one another that we're in close community, now all of a sudden it's not so harmonious. Community always creates conflict. And if you're not in conflict, what they're saying, and I think what the Bible tells us, is that you're not in real community. Because real community will mean that you get annoyed with people and frustrated with people. Real community will mean that you don't always want to be with the people that you're with. And that may sound really difficult to you unless you've ever been in community, in which case you're just nodding along because that's the way it works. That the people that we're placed with are often the people that are most frustrating to us. So the question is, how do we handle that? When we come in conflict with other people because we're in community with them and that conflict rears up and we have this frustration, what do we do? Well, the challenge for us in an individualistic consumerist society is that if you're at York Alliance and you come in conflict with someone else, there are 400 other churches in York County that you can go to. And so you can just like up and leave. Every time you hit conflict, you can take off and go somewhere else, which is not the way that God ever intended community to work. Listen to Joseph Hellerman um, as he talks about the way that church was a family at one point, back in the New Testament days, the way that it was described as a family. He says this, people who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in Christian life. Here's what he's saying. When we stick with one another in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the frustration, when we disagree, when we stay connected anyway, that's when we grow. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that there's never a time to leave a church. There are appropriate reasons to do that. And if you're not sure what that is, you can come to membership class in a couple weeks. We talk about that at membership class. Uh, there, there are appropriate reasons, but for far too many of us, we're not waiting for the appropriate reason when we're frustrated, when we disagree, when we don't like something, our response is to disappear, and I mean that very specifically. I mean, not even in connection with the people around us, just disappear. And when that happens, we fail to be formed into the image of Jesus. We fail to work out the gospel. Even if you need to leave, you should be leaving in the midst of being forgiven and forgiving the people around you because that's the way the gospel works. Community is intended for us to live out the gospel. I, I could give you tons of illustrations. Let me just give you one specific one. Um, there's a mentor that I have in my life who is really one of the most important mentors that I've had. Uh, he has invested in me in powerful ways and ways that have really changed who I am personally and certainly as a pastor. But our relationship started pretty rocky. Um, uh, we, our very first conversation, at least one that, the first one I can remember, I'm sure there were some before this, but the first one I can remember was an intense disagreement. I remember it in my head like a screaming match. That's probably an exaggeration, but that's what I remember. Um, I was a youth pastor. I had uh, interacted with uh, the, this person's uh, child and had given them some advice. The, the, this person disagreed with that advice, and we had it out. And in that conversation, I'm not sure that either one of us really moved. I think we ended up uh, kind of agreeing to disagree. Um, I, I don't know that we... we came to agreement on that situation, but both of us stayed in relationship. And sometimes it was uncomfortable, and early on it was difficult. I had to be willing to forgive, he had to be willing to forgive. But years later, the fruit of that relationship was this 
rich and deep connection that is so much stronger because of that conflict. It's fascinating for me to think back. I'm not sure that I would be able to trust him as my mentor as much as I do if our initial interaction hadn't been that conflict. But it was only because we stuck it out. I've been in those conflicts since then, and sadly, so many times people then just leave relationship. I, I can't even imagine all that would be lost in my life, and I hope in his as well, if we would have just left relationship at that point. Being connected to one another, journeying together, give us a, it gives us a place to work out the gospel, to forgive and to be forgiven, to be shaped and molded. We work out the gospels, we journey together. There's one other that I want to wrap up with, which is following Jesus in the mundane. The beautiful aspect of this love that Jesus has for us is that it moves outside of this room. The, the challenge with so many of us as we think about following Jesus is it's a, a, a segmented church thing. So I follow Jesus on Sunday morning. I follow Jesus in my time in the morning as I pray and read the scriptures. I follow Jesus when I go with my community group. I follow Jesus in these segmented areas. And then the rest of my life is the rest of my life. It's just, it's just different. The, the act of, the, the habit of journeying together moves following Jesus outside of the church setting into the normal stuff of life. I, I want to give you another quote from John Tyson, a different book called Sacred Roots. Uh, Tyson says this, the way our modern lives are organized makes it incredibly challenging to be the kind of church Jesus had in mind, even if we want to do it with all of our hearts. It's hard to demonstrate sacrificial love for others when we only see them every other week in a programmed Christian event. If we're going to love like we're called, it will require far more intentionality than bumping into one another at the coffee bar after the service or shaking hands across the aisle during the morning greeting or passing the peace. Now, obviously this was written pre-COVID-19. Some of you are like, I would love to shake hands across the aisle. That would make me feel so wonderful. And, and, and actually that's the point. If, if, you're, if the extent of relationship for you or for me was oriented around our large corporate gatherings, there's a sense of aloneness and isolation right now that feels unbearable. That feels like, I wish I could touch someone. I wish I could shake a hand. I'd love to pass the peace. I don't even know what that is, but I'd love to do it. But the intent of our discipleship with Jesus as it relates to community is that it not be limited to our Sunday morning gatherings. The church has never been the Sunday morning gathering. The fact that we're not meeting corporately today and you're watching me on a screen does not at all limit the church from being the church. We're called to be people who are connected to one another. And if you feel that isolation right now, allow that to be a, a prick from the spirit that's saying, I need to be more connected in other ways because I'm too reliant on the corporate gatherings. One of the lessons that we've learned over the course of this past year, we as a, an organization, as a church, were too reliant on the corporate gatherings. And these, uh, this way of uh, looking at the world has changed the way that we see that. We need to journey together. We need to walk together with one another. Following Jesus can't simply be done in the setting of the church. When we truly pursue Jesus, it's in every area of our lives. It fits into all of the mundane details. And that's one of the great advantages to journeying together. When I journey with someone, when I commit my life to walking with someone, being connected to them, yeah, every couple weeks with intentionality, but what will happen in that relationship is that we get more connected in a variety of different ways as we journey together. When that happens... I begin to see my relationship with Jesus bleed over into every other area of life. That person doesn't just see me as a pastor in a church. They see me as a dad. They see me as a husband. They see me as an employee. They see me as a friend. They see me as a part of the community. And when the worlds start to overlap, 
my life begins to look more like Jesus in all of those areas. At some point in time, I can't fake it anymore. You can't fake it anymore. Journeying together allows us to live authentically because discipleship is intended to be holistic. The heart of becoming like Jesus, being an apprentice who begins to do the things that Jesus does because we desire the things that Jesus desires, the the heart of that is that it would bleed over into every single area of our life, that we wouldn't just do the things that God wants us to do, but we would desire to do the things that God wants us to do, that we're not just changed at the action level, but at the heart level. Dallas Willard, of course, you need a good Dallas Willard quote to, uh, to wrap up today. Dallas Willard says this, this process of disciple making involves people learning to do what he did and taught, learning to handle the ordinary events of daily life within the principles and power of God's rule. When you look at all the difficulties we face in our world and ask yourself, what would it be like if those places were inhabited by disciples of Jesus who are doing their work to the glory of God and the power of his name? What would Jesus do if his job was your job or my job? What Willard's getting at is this, that we're called to not just act like Jesus in church. We're called to not just act like Jesus within a Christian community. We're called to live like him in every area of our life. I should be asking the question, how would Jesus be a dad to my kids? I should be asking the question, how would Jesus work Monday through Friday in a church setting? For me, for you, how would Jesus work Monday through Friday in whatever your job is, doing whatever it is that you do? What would Jesus do is one way to ask the question, but a much better way to ask the question doesn't fit as nice on a little bracelet or whatever if you're a child of the 80s like I am. Um, A much better way to ask the question is what would Jesus do if he were you, if he were in your situation, if he were your gender with your background and your community and your influences and your opportunities, how would Jesus act then? Journeying together pushes our pursuit of Christ into every aspect of our being. And it's as simple as having the practice of a discipleship partner, somebody journeying with me, because it moves that, re- that relationship with Jesus out of the church setting into the normal life setting. And it's a vital way for us to become his followers. So why should we commit to journeying together? Um, Next week, we're going to talk a bunch about the how. We're going to dig into some of the specifics of what it looks like and uh, how we do it and um, how we unpack this connection together. But this morning, I simply want to say this. We, We do it because Jesus did it. We will never have the life of Jesus unless we take on the lifestyle of Jesus. Jesus was committed to the people around him in a community we need to be that kind of committed as well. We do it because Jesus did it. We do it because it allows us to work out the gospel, to forgive and to be forgiven. And we do it because it takes the following of Jesus outside of the church into the holistic life that's around us, that every aspect of our life begins to be infused with the love of Jesus. And so I very simply want to invite you into that. And as I do, let me just say one final thing. Um, Some of you are hearing this and you're saying, that's great for extroverts. (laughs) That's great for people who love to hang out with people, but I'm an introvert and I like my alone time. Can I tell you, there are tons of individualistic extroverts who spend a lot of time with a lot of different people while they're focused on their own lives. And and I don't even mean self-focused as much as I mean they're, um, they're, they're taking care of themselves. And there are tons of communally minded introverts who maybe don't have a wide circle of people they're interacting with all the time, but they're intentionally reliant on the people around them. Don't believe the lie that I'm not wired this way. We're all wired this way. Genesis 2 says, it is not good for man to be alone. You and I are created for the world around us, to be connected to the world around us. And a great way to do that is to be a discipleship partner. So let me encourage you to step into that and to journey with those in the world around you. Let me pray for us. 
Jesus, as we step into 2021, there's lots of things that are changing in the world around us and lots of things that are on our minds and our hearts. And um, Jesus, we want to be people who become more like you. We want to be people who are not simply learning more information. We pray that this would be a year where we would gain insight into what it means to be followers of Jesus. But we don't just need new information. We want to be people who are living the life that you call us to live. And so, Jesus, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters who are hearing this. And I I know many of them feel very isolated right now. And so, God, first, I pray for those who are already in discipleship partner relationships that you would just um, encourage them this morning. Uh, Maybe some of those relationships have lapsed a bit, and I pray that this would be an opportunity to renew them. Um, Some of them are still vitally connected, and God, I pray that they would continue to be so. But for so many, that kind of co-pilgrimage is foreign to the way that we think. We've just never done it. So God, would you break down the barriers and help us to be people who journey together? I I would... I believe that it would be such an incredible move forward for us in Christ-likeness if all of us were to say, yeah, there's somebody that I'm journeying with. This person is part of my journey. I'm intentionally connected to them a couple times a month. We're walking together. We're holding one another accountable. We're encouraging one another on. We're praying for the world around us. We're, We're connected. And so, God, would you do that? Draw our hearts in. Give us a place of connection and help us to be people who are committed to journeying together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I imagine that there are several different kinds of responses to have as we hear that kind of message. Some of you are in community and thanking God for it, and hallelujah, we should be doing that. Some of you are desperate for it and asking God for community, and that is absolutely appropriate. But perhaps a better question than, uh, God, where can I find community, is, God, who can I be community for? Um, Instead of, God, give me neighbors, who can I be a neighbor to? And so as we sing and respond... Um, would, you, would you press into that? Would you ask the, the Spirit to open your eyes to those whom you can be community for, to be loving sacrificially, which may mean it may not feel like you're getting much out of it. Uh, and yet that would be uh, the way of the gospel. So let's respond and, and engage with the Holy Spirit together. hurting and broken within overwhelmed by the weight of your sin Jesus is calling have you come to the end of yourself do you thirst for a drink from the well Jesus is calling